If young people's opinion are not taken into account, if they are treated as sweet little kids that have nice ideas but don't really stand up, really hold up to the argument, then you, you are not changing anything. Hello everyone and welcome back to the next page. The United Nations Library and Archives Geneva podcast designed to advance the conversation on multilateralism. My name is Tiffany Verga, and I work here at the United Nations Library and Archives Geneva. In today's episode, you're going to be hearing from Maria Isabel Visa, who at the time of this interview was the Deputy Director of Forhaus and Head of Forhaus Romandie. Forhaus is a Swiss think tank which advocates for constructive foreign policy and an informative dialogue. Maria sat down with our director, Francesco Pisano, where they explored the relationship of youth with multilateralism, diversity and representation, and how to best engage youth in the decisions of today. But without giving away too much from this discussion, we hope that you enjoy this week's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this new episode of The Next Page. Today, I'm very happy to have a friend of our library and archives since a long time, Maria Isabel Wieser, and we're going to have to have a conversation on youth and multilateralism, two topics that are really key to this moment of multilateral relations that we're living in the world. Maria Isabel Wieser has been the head of Four House for the past three years, I believe, and she's been in international relations for as long as I knowing her, uh, doing excellent job on the fronts of youth, but also gender and the role of women, international affairs and multilateral. So it's really a pleasure to have you here, Maria Isabel. Thank you for joining us. And please tell us a little bit about yourself. So before we delve into the, the topic of this conversation today, our audience get to know you a little bit better. Well, thank you so much, Francesco, for uh, giving me this opportunity, for having me here. It's always such a pleasure to, to talk to you. Um, so about myself, as you have already said, uh, I'm the Deputy Director uh, of Four Hours and Head of the Romandie. So I've worked uh, especially with our stakeholders here, also the UN and the, especially the UN Library. Before that, I have, well, I grew up in, in Zurich. I was born in Japan, which is a bit exotic. <laughs> uh, I grew up in Zurich. I, also, I studied in Lucerne political science. Then I came to Geneva and did international relations. And I, didn't, I worked in Washington, D.C. For, for a while. While Trump was elected, that was actually a very interesting experience. I then came back and worked first uh, as an intern uh, for Forhaus, and then a year later I took over as a deputy director. So, so far, it sounds like a brilliant career with actually highlights, uh, including your birth in Japan. I, did, I didn't know that. <laughs> it's so great to have you here. So let's start by giving a general overview of Four House. Um, this is an interesting outfit. I was actually, the first time I came across Four House was long ago. And I was, I was really amazed at, at how Four House was able to place the youth and the role of youth in international relations uh, at the forefront. Front. But tell us a little bit what is for us, what is the general idea behind this platform and advocacy mission? 
So for us, this in its form is actually a think tank which advocates for a constructive foreign policy and an informative dialogue which is independent, scientific and relevant. Um, through our platform, we offer young volunteers, so that's quite important, most of them are volunteers, um, access to the international discourse um, so that they can actually contribute with their ideas. And they do that through either uh, publications or they, we organize high-level events, and we've done so on the occasion of the UN uh, 75th birthday, for instance, with you, Francesco, to, which we engaged young people. You gave them the opportunity to talk to the general director of the ILO or the secretary general of the ITU. So this is one thing that we do. We sort of facilitate this access. Then also we have a platform, a digital platform that's called Policy Kitchen, which gives access to actually everybody that is interested in contributing with ideas to, to foreign policy. And there we organize, so we have different topics. We do, uh, for instance, a good example, the 75th birthday, we actually did a call for contributions. Everybody could contribute with their ideas what they wanted to change. And then, of course, we try to push or we do push these ideas uh, through the media, but also we interact with policy uh, decision makers and bring their ideas, uh, the, the young people's ideas, um, on to the table. So that's a bit what Forest does in, in its biggest, widest terms. There is an accent on advocacy on your website. When you go on the website, it, it, it tells the story of Forehouse in a certain way, and it talks about this advocacy mission. Can you tell us a little bit what Forehouse advocates for? So we, so it's important that Forehouse, we have no political stand. So maybe an interesting story is how Forest came to be. So it was actually young people that came together and it, it was Swiss people and for those that are listening that are not familiar with the Swiss political system we have a participative democracy you can almost say where we have to vote or we were allowed to vote on several issues. So this was in the light of the there was a, a, a vote, a popular vote, on the access or the continuing access for, for EU citizens, um, for the free movement of people within the EU, and the expansion to Bulgaria and R Romania at the time. And this was in 2008, if I remember that correctly. And there were cross-party, the young parties came together and they wanted, they wanted to push for this initiative and so they came together and they realized when it comes to foreign policy, they actually agreed on many levels. So they thought that there was actually a space for, for engagement of youth, that they could collaborate constructively on, on ideas and solutions. And this is how, how it was created and this is also the goal. We, we really want it, it, the idea is to take out this party um, identification and to just give the, the young people um, access to coming with constructive and, and scientifically based so that we don't it's not open for any ideas it needs to be grounded and you have to we have a review board that is actually looking on the quality of the recommendations um, we also make sure that we have external reviews by university professors or people active in in, in the field um, that review these propositions before they go out so the, the idea is really to have um, scientifically based recommendations that can also hold up in like the that are actually possible to to um, implement later 
Okay, I see. So basically, if I understand correctly, for us advocates for the involvement of youth in foreign policy beyond party political party yes, lines. That's absolutely. that's what you yeah. guys do. And it's very interesting to see how that will will come to that later actually affected in a certain way the um, U, UN in Geneva and the international Geneva ecosystem. We'll, we'll come to that later. But before we go there, I wanted to ask you, you are just relinquishing the leadership of uh, the French-Switzerland part of the network of the, or the platform uh, called Four House. So I wanted to ask you, what has been your experience during your tenure as a young female leader of a platform that advocates for the role of youth in foreign policy? Well, it has been such a rich experience, really. I was welcomed. It was so unique, the way of of how this ecosystem here in Geneva actually welcomed a young person that is advocating for other young people. Uh, The interest was really overwhelming. In the beginning, I I, I joke about it, but it's really true. I, I did not one, I didn't have to reach out to one person. I had one year full of meetings because people were so interested in the work we were doing. So it has been a really rich experience. I've met with so many heads of organization, with director of international organization, and this has been absolutely uh, unique. And also the, the exposure to the media was, was quite unique. I wasn't expecting that when I started. But then also what we have, we had the COVID, of course. It was also an experience of how to manage a young, a very young team through a crisis, which was not always easy. It's a time where you, you come to the boundaries of, of, what you, of your leadership skills, I would say. But it has been so much learning also. I'm extremely grateful for, for, the, for all the people also within my team that supported me, that allowed me to do so many mistakes. <laughs> you, you do a lot of mistakes when you're young and starting something. And who kept with me and I had so much support. Also people that would read through my things, people that were, would push me. And so, yeah, and then also, of course, what is absolutely great is first the, the, the potential in International Geneva. I believe there is so much potential that we can do much more. And then, of course, the energy of the young people, which is just extremely gratifying when you see this, this potential and, and this energy. This is just that's just very gratifying at the end of the day. I believe you. And you either need to be young to see the potential that there is in youth in global governance today. Uh, I've seen examples across the street at the Graduate Institute, for example. I've seen examples at the University of Geneva, of course, in the Four Hours Network as well. I was exposed to a few of your events. We worked together. We realized two events together with Four Hours, and I was amazed at this energy. So it is apparent it comes through whether or not you're young. And actually, I wanted to take you to a different second part of our of our conversation together, if you wish, uh, about youth and the redesign of multilateralism. Why this term in particular is because it has become quite accepted that the multilateralism, let's say, formula that we have used so far have helped us a lot in a lot of areas, both political, economic, geostrategic, etc. But it has created a lot of external cost that we are now having to face in terms of global challenges, you name migration, climate, inequalities. All these are byproducts of what the decisions will be taken also multilaterally. So we have come to a point where a lot of analysts and thinkers are saying maybe we should start talking about which 
multilateral formula we need to face these problems and enjoy prosperity and development and sustainable development in the future. So I would like to ask you, what are the views being discussed by young people inside Four House and in other partner networks working together with Four House concerning the need to reshape multilateralism? I think there are two things that are usually pointed out. The first is probably, and, and can talk more about this, diversity of people that are actually active and, and what does multilateralism mean. And the second is also the speed in which multilateralist um, organization work. So for the first point, I think... If you look at if you look at the people that are, that make this multilateralism work, or if you look at the UN, you see that it's it's not our generation represented on top. The system is quite hierarchical. You have to go through through multiple levels of uh, of work to to actually access to to decision making. Also, I mean. Just if you look at how to get into the UN, you have this unpaid, I have to say it, it's not without wanting to be political, but you have the interested and unpaid. And this gives the space only to a certain way of people, right? I mean, you have to be honest, the people that it's really the elite that has access even to the internships. And I think is, is, this is one big problem that we see, that, that it remains something very elitious, even if you manage to have all the states at one table, which is amazing. I mean, we don't have to, to question that the UN is an absolute great achievement. But if you look at who is represented there, you have to say it's still the elites. Even if in Switzerland, where you have great education, where you have actually the possibility to access this kind of position, it still remains something for the children that actually know that you can study, that, that are pushed to, to study. So this is one thing. And then also the other thing, the speed, I think, if you look at, at what paced young people work, <laughs> if you look at all the social media that, that really comes with new initiatives, with new things, with new topics every day, multilateralism is based on a very slow pace because everybody can contribute, which, which I absolutely see this constraint. But still, and um, now we are fighting or we are facing um, challenges that need immediate um, responses. You have the climate change, of course, but we were also talking about security risks. You have, if you look at Afghanistan, the young people, they don't want to wait. They want something, they want to see something right now. And I think that is also a bit one issue that, that's happening. And in the, if you look inside, I mean, and this is not the problem that the UN has uni uniquely. I mean, it's this hierarchy problems. Um, Younger people and even myself, I see you question, you start questioning the legitimacy of people that are in power. And, and you ask yourself, why are they in power? Why is it so, so difficult to pass your ideas? Why do you, why can't you talk? And I think here it's, it's very important and we can talk more about this later, but to, to have an intergenerational dialogue, but not only the dialogue, but also really bring these people into this organization and give them a, a place at the table, actually. Yeah, I would love to have the discussion on, on the power of intergenerational dialogue. We'll, we'll come to that a little bit later. You mentioned this hierarchical leadership model that is still very much in use in multilateral institutions, first of all. You cannot change multilateralism as a practice using you know, means and tools and organizations that still believe in top-down leadership. 
which is a pretty primitive, still yet working principle of leadership. We know that from academic studies. This is all changing, and this is perhaps why you tend not to identify with top-down hierarchical leadership models that leave much less space to ideas to come through the ranks and conquer the logical space that they deserve or fail if they don't deserve it. It's all in the openness of the system. So I would agree with you, you're not the only one picking up this feature of of contemporary multilateralism that seem to hinder its capacity from reform. And that's why many youths are actually rejecting the formula altogether, which may be correct if we need to replace it, or may be incorrect if we need to fix it for what is worth it today. Now, you mentioned something else that I'm very interested in, is the perception of time or urgency. You seem to perceive that the house is burning and we need to act now, and they don't see, I was told by students, for example, uh, in masters um, on, on governance, of global governance, that they perceive the response by international institutions as being sort of complacent. There is time. What's the rush about? So I'm interested to know from you what is the assessment that you can make, given your experience in four hours, of the youth potential for contribution in this institution, the UN, of course, we are, we are here in the UN, United Nations, Geneva, but also in other international institutions that you have, um, that you have come across during your, your tenure. So what is your assessment? Poor, medium, good? So, I mean, I've seen great initiatives that are done uh, by the UN and, and we've worked with you on many of them. So I think this is a really good start. I think there is a willingness to engage young people. This is a start. I mean, I'm not sure how this was done 20 years ago if, if there was actually a willingness to engage young people. But again, I mean, if here you, it starts at the beginning, right? It starts in the small things. And if young people's work is, is not remunerated, for instance, if young people's opinion are not taken into account, if they are treated as sweet little kids that have nice ideas but don't really stand up to, you know, they, they don't really hold up to the argument, then you, you are not changing anything. I think... There is a need for, for, for the young people to actually get a space to being recognized for their, for what they're contributing, for having their work recognized, for also sitting with them and saying, okay, I don't quite agree with you on this. How, how do you explain this? And also engage in the dialogue because some, they might not know everything that the older generations know. I, I find it fascinating. I'm not that young anymore. I, I listen to, <laughs> to young people uh, and I learn so much. And then sometimes I have to say, yeah, but have you thought about this? And this is also very important. So I think you, there is the need for all the generations to actually be represented, but you need to, to create this space. And I think there is a lot of potential to create this space. And either in actively giving them for instance, their time is valuable, they don't have the resources, you need to sort of give them incentives to engage, and also you need to open the doors to actually giving them the possibility also to engage. What is the one thing that you would recommend the UN should do to involve young people more? I wish, I would love to see actual interaction of the records because what, what I've seen a bit is that you have all these constraints, right? You have these, um, 
there is a certain way how in the UN you have to have this person talking first and then this person talks and you have to... What I would love to see is a space where you can meet around a coffee and just talk. And I think that would be so... And heads of organizations or people at crucial spaces within the organization, just really listening to the young people. And as I said, not just listening, but engaging, exchange, finding, having the actual will to find a solution. I think that would be my absolute wish. <laughs> okay, it is all on record. Uh, I hope, uh, I hope the, the top tier of the UN Secretariat will <laughs> listen to this podcast and, and call you back. Now, if we stay on this, this dimension that you just opened with your latest remarks, and we expand our outlook and, and see you know, a little bit like talking about youth and the state, the present state of the world, if you wish. Now, you just mentioned how it is, how difficult it is for youth to simply be heard, be listened to in this fora. And of course, by investing in youth more than countries that are represented at the UN could develop a, a sort of inter intergenerational synergy that would allow them to see problems in different perspectives. Um, it is striking how the decisions we take today create a debt in the future. So decisions are taken today and then, you know, the cost is paid by generations that are barely born or not even born yet. And that is certainly something that we're seeing in the area of climate inequalities, but also migration, I believe. So you've been discussing for years in this youth or young environment I'd be curious uh, for you to share with our audience how do young people today envision their future and the future of global governance when you look, you know, 30 years from now, 25 years from now, what is that you see? Yeah, I mean, I'm not that young again, so I don't feel legitimate to actually talk for this kind of young generation. What I can say, and it depends who you ask, obviously, but what I think is quite striking in the Generation Z that you're seeing now is that you see, I think, a mix of not pessimism, but actually seeing the problems, recognizing that there is an urgency, recognizing the problems. I Honestly, I can't remember my generation being so interested at this young age for, for global challenges in such a wide range. It would always have people interested, but this was quite a small group. Now you have whole classrooms actually moving to the streets. So, so I, th I see... Um, the sense of, of what is expecting them and at the same time such an energy to change this um, which I love because I, I am very hopeful for, for, for this uh, at the same time I think they need help they can't do this on their own and I find it sometimes a bit frustrating to see how people love how these young people are getting out there and they love their energy but nobody is actually willing to go to them and say okay now we need to do that so what do you need or what do you want us to do and i'm missing this a bit that the people actually try to engage with them and actually listen to their propositions it's happening but again it's it's inviting a greta thunberg to the table that's very nice and it gives you a, a very beautiful exposure but it's not sitting down with with young people and, and listening to what they actually have, have uh, as sorrows. So I think 
So yeah, a bit a mix of uh, sort of recognizing the urgency and then also a lot of, of potential. And then for global global governance, this again, I, I can't speak in their name. I guess they, they are a bit pessimistic about uh, how global governance looks right now. If you think in terms of, yeah, if you think global governance, you, you will think UN. When I was young, I loved the idea of the UN. I was certain that they would change the world. Of course, when you get into it, you, you start seeing the constraints that's always like this. But I think that they are also a bit frustrated in what's, what's happening, what, what the states, it's still on the state level, right? I mean, it's, it's still slow. You still have heads of states that are not very diverse. And I think that there is a, quite a bit of frustration. I'm not sure how optimistic the youth is about uh, multilateralism. But again, I don't want to talk in their name. Uh, maybe they have a complete different view on the topic and, and also it depends on who you're asking. Of course, but this point brings us back to the point of intergenerational dialogue and intergenerational synergy. And that is well known in some quarters of uh, corporate um, business, for example. I know large companies who have harvested the potential of intergenerationality in areas as diverse as marketing and, and product design, for example, with very interesting results. I cannot say that, that the same is happening um, in, in, uh, in the area known as multilateralism, but maybe you can help us and the audience realize what is the state of the debate in four hours or for what you know in your experience in four hours in the past three years and other think tanks to have met along the way for the potential of intergenerational dialogue now and in the future. It seems to me that the potential is very high just because the actual international intergenerational dialogue is so low now that the potential for development is huge. But that is not the potential I'm referring to, the potential to actually get together and solve global issues. A little bit like what you were mentioning before, you know, youth have ideas, they have energy, they don't have uh, older people in power coming to them and say, hey, let's do this together. I've got the budget, you've got the energy, I've got, you know, the, the connections, you've got the time. How much of that potential is existing today that we could develop? Yeah, as you said, the potential is huge because there, there is a lot of potential. Um, so, I mean, this intergenerational dialogue, is a, it, it is a bit the core concept of For House. I mean, we, the, the, the idea to bring young people at the table, we do lots of interactive events and the, the goal of this is exactly this you bring experts to the table and you bring young people to the table you bring young experts to the table and you bring all the citizens to the table and this is exactly what, what we do so this is one thing and, and it's not always easy to actually get the people on one page and discuss about a certain topic honestly i couldn't say for like the, the bigger thing well no that's actually not true i i for instance chatham house i know they are doing something uh, that goes into that direction as well they, they try to involve the young generation i think this is absolutely crucial and and there is huge there is really huge potential the thing is a bit that you have, you have this head of states, you have these people in, in powerful positions and they have a certain amount of time and, and, and I see that problem. I see it myself and it's important and for now this is not a priority. It's not a priority to listen to the younger generation and I think it should, it should become a priority. And then also when we talk about 
youth, I don't see myself as youth, but if we talk about young generation, then it's also, I think it's people also up to the age of 40 that are actually, you can't access power positions because you have people staying in these positions that are very comfortable. I see it myself. I, for me, it was really time to, to leave the seat to someone that has that is younger, that has new and fresh ideas. I find this crucial that you also say to yourself, okay, I've had my ideas, I've given what I could to this, to this organization, and then also take a step back and say it's time for fresh ideas. And I think this is also something... There's the intergenerational dialogue. There is the, the need for, for mixed teams that, so that you mix the teams. You really have older people with the experience at the same time, very young people that bring in new ideas. So I think it's a bit on, on all the fronts that you can actually fight this, this fight. <laughs> I think it's a very powerful leadership example you're giving. We know from leadership theory that one of the characteristics of leaders is to be able to see the world without themselves and therefore prepare for their successors. And it's one of the characteristics in several leadership studies out there for, for great leaders to do. Not all leaders do that, of course, as you remark. But I'm impressed to see a young leader, because you, you don't count yourself in youth, I don't know why, but certainly you're a young leader and you're applying that principle. And I would like to stay with the focus on you, not only as a young leader, but as a young woman in a leadership position, because I think that this is something that happened in four hours before, but it's taken a different flavor because the imprint that you leave around you gets deeper with time. And I've seen it because I've met your predecessors, both young men and young women. I saw that your impact was incrementally bigger. And this is because the environment is accepting young and woman as a leader, which was not necessarily true only 10 years ago. And so this is very encouraging. But let's go to to the core of the gender issue here, because leadership, power, gender cannot be really separated, right? When we talk about power, it leads to issues of gender, also diversity and equity. But let's stay on gender for a second. Being a young woman active in the area of international relations in a leadership position, what are your impressions on gender? I mean, first of all, maybe to, to what you were saying, I also had the big chance of having two great persons before me paving the way. That must be said because it was not just my work. It was actually taking over a legacy, really. And that's much easier than setting the first stone. So this is really important first. But of course, I mean, it's true that the environment is very welcoming to, to um, for instance, medias love you. <laughs> they, they need to have a woman. So you will be called on Many issues. I was called on so many issues, which is, I'm an expert in one, maybe two fields, and that's it. And I had to say no many times, and I was just not, I had no idea about the topic. So, yes, the environment is very welcoming. At the same time, you have all these struggles that uh, you hear about. You really face them from... Um, Really, you have the whole palette um, from from not being heard, from being very much accepted to not much more when you don't show interest in certain people. I mean, this is you don't have you can't lie. I, I've I've been the youngest at many tables, and I was lucky to be heard, but that's not always the case. So there is there is really so much that needs to be done. 
and we're so far away from, from gender equality. But I mean, my personal experience, I had just this amazing support, not just for, from women, but also from men that believed in what I could do. And they pushed me also. And I think this is something that is extremely important to, to know if you have women in your team, if you have young women in your team, they need an extra push. I, had, I saw this when I compared this a bit with my male colleagues. I needed to be reassured all the time that I could actually do this. They needed, I, I had people that would actually say, Maria, you can actually do this. Just go and talk. And it's okay if you, if you fail. Everybody fails. And this I've seen among young people that I had in my team. They thought they were going to fail. They wouldn't even step up, you know. And you have to really tell them, well, you are up to the challenge. And I think this is something that's extremely important. You have to reassure young women to say, you can do this. And then being there along the way. And I think think that's that's a big difference. I don't want to to be very gender specific here because it's also true for for young men. But it's, it's not just pushing them in the position, but being there and and reassuring them when there are failures that they are on the right path and it is normal to fail and being there up to the end until they can actually fly themselves. And I think this is this is something I've I've seen and, and I've learned through the through the thing. You just really need to to be present if you want to empower young women. And it's true in a way that when we observe uh, leadership at young age there is a difference uh, that is brought to the table by gender. For example, my experience is that young leaders who are men need not to be discouraged. And young women who are in leadership position need to be encouraged. Yeah. So it's, you know, encourage some, avoid discouraging others. I think that the gender neutrality there is very difficult to achieve because women and men bring different leadership colors, flavors, and, and, and facets. And that is the miracle of how leadership positions are incarnated by different people, different genders, differently. And this is what you were saying before. If leaders do not leave the place to other leaders, then we're missing out the potential of diversity. But now there is one thing that I'm visualizing. I'm talking to you. I'm visualizing our audience of many, many thousand people. And there must be so many young women trying to figure out what can I learn from this Maria Isabel? So tell them what is your, maybe not a trick, but your advice as young women who aspire to have leadership position at a young age. I think it's important to recognize that you have different baggages. I think that's, that's probably, you come with a different baggage, you come with different experiences. That's true for everybody. I mean, everybody brings their own baggage. And then I think what is very important is, is to know that you are not alone. For me, that helped a lot, seeing other women in, my, in similar positions fighting exactly the same problems. I think that's true for all young leaders. Knowing that there are other people that, that know what you're going through, don't be afraid to reach out for help. Mentors are a great thing, women that have been through that, but also men can be a mentor and, and don't give up. Excellent, very powerful. Before we wrap up, we're coming nicely to to the end of this episode. Where can our audience find out more about Four Hours, about yourself, what you do, any you know websites, resources that you want to advertise to our audience? Yeah, I realized when you Google Four Hours and you Google my name, you find quite a lot. 
<laughs> of articles. But if you're, uh, so for us, it's www.foraus.ch. If you're interested to learn more about Foraz. Also, we have lots of events. I hope they're coming back. So you, you can also find, if you Google it, you can find events in your region if you're in Switzerland. Then, yeah, I think that's, that's probably the easiest uh, way to, to connect. <laughs> Great. And so in concluding this episode, do you have a particular message for those who are listening to us? I believe a lot in the young generation and I'm very eager to see what, what they are going to do. And for the older generation, uh, support them, get involved with them. Get interested in their thinkings, in their ideas. I think that's important. Maria Isabel Wieser, thank you so much for being with us on thank the you. podcast. Thank you very much, Francesca. We hope you enjoyed the conversation between Maria Isabel Wieser and our director, Francesco Pisano. If you'd like any more information, please don't hesitate to check out our show notes where we've put useful links for you. If you love this episode of the Next Page podcast, don't forget to subscribe, rate, leave us a review, or find us at UNOG Library on Twitter and UN Library and Archives Geneva on Facebook. Don't forget to join us every fortnight on Friday mornings for the next episode. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you have a wonderful week. <laughs>